0: Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Well, today my message is entitled, A Blast from the Past. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through the history of the church of 35 years. 35 years today. Isn't that amazing? And uh, we're so glad you could be part of this. And one of the questions people always ask me is, how did the church begin? And it's a long answer, so you're getting the long answer today. And you know, here we are 35 years later, and there's only four of us that are still here from the original group. That would be me, my wife Kathy, my mother, and our unborn son. our, Our newly born son at that time, I guess. And so in other words... Out of the four of us, only two of us can actually remember it. (laughs) That was kind of mean, but you get it. Anyway, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through a little bit of the journey, and I'm going to have some lessons along the way. And as I go through this story and tell it, I'm going to tell you what we learned along the way. And every single one of these lessons can apply to your life, and I think you'll enjoy it. So we're going to start with a little passage, and the passage uh, comes from Samuel chapter 7. And uh, we're going to start at verse 10. And it says, Now as Samuel was offering up burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, so confused them, and they were overcome before Israel. And then the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone. And when it says a stone, it's not talking about a little stone. It's talking about a big, huge rock. And he took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. The word Ebenezer means thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. Now, I love the fact that they set up a rock. We're Church of the Rock. And the rock was a memorial to what God had done in the past. And so what that rock meant was if God had done it in the past, he'll do it again in the future. They weren't done their journey. They were in the midst of their journey. But they set up this rock so they would always remember this, that thus far the Lord has helped us. Anybody who thinks we're done is dreaming. It might be 35 years of our journey, but we have just begun. And there's a whole bunch of lessons that we learned. And so I'm going to give you seven lessons today. And with each lesson, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story of our history and how we learned that lesson. And like I said, these lessons can apply to your business, to your life, to your friendships and everything. So here it is. The first thing is this. The first lesson we learned was this, take a licking, but keep on ticking. How many of you know where that comes from? Timex, Timex watch, how many owned a Timex watch? So, so here's what happened, the Timex watch came out in the 50s and it was sort of a big deal, they hired this guy named John Cameron Swayze and he was a newscaster, very famous, and he was their ad man and what they would do is they would torture this watch and they put it on Mickey Mantle's bat, they put it on Ben Hogan's golf clubs, they put it on Rocky Marciano's boxing gloves, But the one that really catapulted Timex into the future and into their success was when he did a live television ad. You probably don't know this, but in the 50s, the ads were live. They went on stage and did them right in the middle of the show. And he took this tank, here's the picture here, here's John Cameron Swayze, he's got an outboard motor, he's put the watch, if you look carefully, 9.95 for that watch, he's strapped it to the propeller blade, he puts it into the tank, he starts the motor up, <laughs> revs it up in, in forward, pulls the motor out, and the watch is gone. <laughs> and he's, he, he just rolls with it, that's not how it meant to happen. And he finds the watch in the bottom of the, bottom of the tank, and guess what? It's still running. It took a licking, but kept on ticking. And one of the lessons you'll learn in life is that when opposition comes, you need to understand God's probably preparing you for something big. He said, you will have persecution, you will have adversity in this world, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And a lot of times what we do is we despise the difficulties when they come. We despise tribulation instead of realizing that it's probably part of the journey and you're going to become a better person because of it. So let me tell you the story right from the beginning and how we took a licking but we kept on ticking. So Kathy and I came to Christ when we were in our early 20s and got married and we went to a church. I can only describe it as a little wacky, but we didn't have a big church background, so we didn't know any better. And we were part of this wacky church and it was growing and uh, they needed help and volunteers. And within six months of becoming Christians... Kathy and I were leading a small group, helping disciple other new Christians. Disciple these people. I mean, how, how crazy is that? That's Book of Acts stuff. And here was the interesting thing. I would teach them every week from the Bible, and I had no idea what I was talking about. For, for you know, all intents and purposes, I was teaching them heresy, but what did I care? Nobody else seemed to care, and away we went. We did this for a year and a half after that, and then I felt the call of God. I really felt like God was calling us into the ministry to do something, and I thought, if I'm going to be in the ministry, maybe it wouldn't hurt to get some training. Who knew? So I, I went off to Bible school, felt like God was leading me that direction, and the Bible school was run by a man by the name of Pastor Wally Wildman. Does that name ring a bell for anybody in the room? A couple of hands are raising their, their up, and uh, Wally was the actual original founder of Springs Church. You probably didn't know that. He's still pastoring today. He's in his mid-70s and pastoring in Oregon. We stay in touch every once in a while. Anyway, he ran this Bible school, and after six months of Bible school, Wally hires me to be his associate pastor. Now, I'm wondering if you've been following the math on this. I've been a Christian two and a half years. I've been in Bible school six months, and I'm now a pastor. Right? I mean six months before that I couldn't spell pastor. Now I are one. And <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so so anyway, I'm now pastoring Wally has me on staff there for, for two years and trained me up, and he was a great man. I really appreciate him, loved the guy dearly. And after two years, he felt he wanted to send me out. We've been working with this little church that was struggling, only had 12 people left and he felt it was a good idea for me to go and become the pastor of this church and to take it over and help this group of people. The church was called Abundant Strife. I, I mean, <laughs> Abundant abundant Life is what, what it was called, and it had gone through a lot of, a lot of struggles, and uh, Kathy and I, not knowing what we were getting into, we went and took over this church uh, in 1986. Here's a picture. This was actually from the very first service that we ever had. There we are. I mean, look at that. Kathy looks, I don't know, 12? And the the amazing thing about this for me is I haven't changed in 35 years. I look exactly, exactly the same. Whenever I see these old pictures, I just marvel that I just don't age. And uh, one of the the penchants I had in those days was I always wore a double-breasted suit. And if you follow carefully, I was wearing one earlier today, and if you follow carefully, in every picture I have a double-breasted suit on, they're pretty swell. I can't wait for them to come back. Are they coming back? No? Well, anyway. So anyway, so we got on board, and away we went, and we started with this group. And then, of course, we had some family and some friends that wanted to come and join us. And within just a few weeks, we were now 35, 40 people, and we were going great guns. And it it was going okay. It was going okay. And really, this church was, was sort of, I'll tell you what it was. It was a charismatic Mennonite church. And so it was actually, for me, a match made in heaven. Because I was the charismatic, and they were the Mennonites, right? (laughs) And I didn't realize that there could possibly be a little bit of conflict down the road. And so I'll never forget, we were probably about three or two or three months into it, and uh, we were going along, we were getting some new people in, and so we were changing our worship team and getting up. And I remember one particular Sunday, I invited one of the gals to lead worship, which she did. And at the end of the service... This group of men came to me and said they were calling an emergency board meeting. I thought, wow, my first emergency board meeting. I couldn't wait. I thought, how exciting. I wonder what the emergency was. I had no idea. So we sat down in the emergency board meeting and they asked me this question. They said, what was that woman doing on stage? I thought long and hard about it. And I said, I don't know, singing? (laughs) And they said, no, no. Why was a woman leading worship? This was our first conflict. And I very confidently said, well, have you read your Bible? Go look. Moses' sister Miriam led worship when they crossed the Red Sea. One of the gentlemen opened his Bible to the book of Exodus and pointed out to me. And it says, and Miriam led the women in praise. To which I went, huh, huh. (laughs) I mean what did I know I'd only been a Christian two and a half years I hadn't even read the whole Bible by then and so so, so in, in, anyway, I thought we're off to a bad start. Now, before I go any further in this story, I want to give a little caveat. Uh, you know what? These people were not bad people. They were good-hearted people. They were, had good intentions. They just had a culture and a background and some sort of liturgies that they followed in the past that they were very kind of important in these traditions. And I didn't know any better. And we had this conflict of cultures. And it kind of carried on from there. We just had sort of one conflict of the other. And the problem was, the church kept on growing because we were kind of doing things more my way uh, than their way. And then after about a year, the church was about 70 people and, and 10 of the 12 people, original people left the church. And once they'd left the church, they thought to themselves, why are we leaving? He should be leaving. You know who he is. That's me, right? He should be leaving. So they called another emergency board meeting. I was getting used to these, kind of quite enjoying them, but I didn't enjoy this one. Now, what had happened was that Kathy had just given birth to our our newborn son. And so she couldn't go to this meeting. So I went to this meeting on my own. Should have never have done that. I sat down one Saturday morning, 10 of them and me, and they ganged up on me for two hours and ripped me a good one. And they told me all the terrible and despicable things that I was doing. And, 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 and again, I'm not trying to criticize them as people. They, I misunderstood them and they misunderstood me. So sometimes that's the dynamic. And so, so this, was, this was, was carrying on and we could see that we were in a little bit of a, a, a difficult place with this. And so then I said to them, what is it exactly that you want? And they said, we want our church back. You see, here's what they were doing. It's a funny story, really, when I think about it. At first they came and then they wanted me to leave. And then they ramped it up and they wanted me to leave and they wanted me discredited publicly somehow. And then they wanted me to leave and be discredited and they wanted me defrocked and removed of my ordination. And then they ramped it out a bit and they thought the ideal solution was for me to be, to leave, to be discredited, to be defrocked, to be arrested and thrown in jail. (laughs) Now, here's the good news. They did not want to kill me because they were pacifists. (laughs) I'm sorry I'm having too much fun with this. But it was actually the truth. And so they said to me, we want our church back. And I said, what's the church? They said, the name and the bank account. And so I said, oh, okay, we can do that. And so I went to the closet and got the, the box... We had literally the whole. See, we had nothing. We had no assets. We had no resources. We had nothing. We literally had a shoebox with our information. We were a church in a box, and whoever had the box had the church. And there was our papers of incorporation in there, and there was our checkbook and a few other things. And so I went and get, got the box and gave them the box. And so then they were happy, and I wasn't happy because I'd been beaten up uh, for two hours. I went home. I've never in my life, even to this day, felt that diminished. I've never felt so eviscerated as a, as a young man. People that were twice my age just ripped me and shredded me for two hours. I remember going in lying on the couch and just thinking, this, this could this could really, truly... Uh, be the end of this. And so then the next day was Sunday. And so people came to the place where we were meeting. They gathered a little bit and they came in. A bunch of them were missing because this other group had phoned every one of them and told them I was a thief and a scoundrel and a and despicable human being. And so there about half of the people had showed up. And so then I told the people that showed up what I'd done, that I'd given the church in the box to the, the other people. And uh, they didn't actually care about the name, but they didn't like the fact that I gave away all their money. Because they had been the ones that were giving and tithing. There was $9,000 in, in that checking account, and I gave it to them. And so what I ended up doing was making everybody mad. Are you following this story? Like I had nobody really happy. So I said, look, we, we, the church is done. We're finished. It's over. Uh, but tomorrow afternoon, uh, Sunday, Monday afternoon, we're going to have a meeting. You can come to my house. We'll sit on the deck. We'll plan what to do next. And whoever's interested, come, and, and we'll have the conversation. So about 24 people, including their kids, uh, showed up, 24, 25 people, sat on our deck, and we had this conversation. And most of the people were only there because, A, they were my family or my friends, or B, they felt sorry for me, which was what most of them did. So we talked about this and we said, do you want to start a new church? And they said, let's do it, a new church, and let's do it the way we want to do it. So we said, okay. So we talked about a name. People wonder where the name came from. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was the 80s. We all loved rock. Who doesn't love rock? Still love it today, don't you? (laughs) <laughs> it looks like we do. And, and so we decided we were going to call it Church of the Rock, and especially given the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we chose a name, and then we had to come up with a vision. So I'm going to share the vision with you right from the beginning, and you can tell me whether you think we're living this vision or not. And here was the vision. The vision was, first of all, to be fully biblical, that we would never compromise on the Word of God, no matter how unpopular it became in culture. Number two, we decided we were always going to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit and always make room for his spirit. Number three, that we were going to be evangelists that can do our best to invite people to Christ. Number four, that we were going to be a relational church where people were allowed to be genuine and real and didn't have to put on airs and didn't have to be in it. And they could be transparent and vulnerable. And then we decided we wanted to be a church that celebrated the resurrection more than we mourned the death on the cross. Which I think we've also done. And then we decided we wanted it to be a place that valued creation, creativity, and innovation. So let me ask you how are we doing on that? Does that sound like our church or not? But I'll tell you something, in that one experience that I have had over those weekends, I mean, do the math on this, uh, I lost my job, had a child, and planted a church all in the same week. That was a very busy week. And I could have just as easily packed it in. I could have just as easily quit right then and there. And that's exactly how I felt. But you know what? You've got to take a licking and keep on ticking. Because things aren't always going to go your way. And anything worthwhile in life is almost always going to cost you something. It's like the story of this pastor, he was just fresh out of seminary, he was preaching his very first sermon in this, in this church that was new to him, and after the sermon he went to the back door and he was shaking everybody's hands one by one as they went by, and this woman comes by and she said, "Honestly." That was the worst sermon I've ever heard. And she just keeps going. And then she circles around and goes back in the line again and, and, and wakes, waits in line, gets them again. And she says, This time she says, Seriously, I wasn't kidding. That was a terrible sermon. You need to go back to Bible school. And then she circled around and went through the line again. And the third time she went through, she said, You know, honestly, Pastor, you shouldn't be a pastor. You really need to consider another line of work. But this time he's feeling very crestfallen. And this elderly gentleman pats him on the shoulder and says, Pastor, Don't worry about her. She doesn't have an original thought in her head. She's just repeating what she's hearing everybody else say. (laughs) So the first thing is this. Take a lick and keep on ticking. I'm going to throw them up on the screen. The second thing is if you obey, God will make a way. So here's how the story went. So we started this church. We needed somewhere to to meet. And uh, there was a building on the corner of Grant and Nathaniel, right across from Grant Grant, uh, Park Mall. It's still there today. It's a Royal Bank, and it's got a zigzag roof. Anybody know that building? It's right there, still there, Royal Bank. And it was a church when it originally was built, and that church had gone bankrupt, and they had gone, and they would close their doors. And the developer who had bought that building was someone I knew, a friend of mine. I phoned him up. I said, I'm pastoring a church and starting this church. Would you rent us that building? He said, look, in six months, we start construction. But I'll tell you what, we'll let you use it for six months for 500 bucks a month, which was a great deal. And we went into this building, and we started having church. And here's our first Christmas in this building. You've got to love this. Uh, we, even then, we did plays and dramas and sets. Look at the elaborate Christmas set we got set up. It, it was like out of this world, the kind of money we spent on that. And uh, you will notice that I'm in yet another double-breasted suit. Man, I look sharp in those. And so anyway, we moved into this building, and we met there for six months. And after six months, they were telling us that we were going to leave. And then what happened was the architect on their project had a heart attack, and they couldn't go forward with their project. So they said, look, we can't start construction. If you want to stay, you can stay until we're ready to move on. it. But we don't want to rent it to you, so you're just going to have to use it for free. So we said, we're okay with that. And uh, because the heart attack was a serious one, they didn't move forward for another year. We spent another 12 months in that building, rent-free the whole time. And so then... (laughs) So then they started bringing equipment in And they said, okay, you've got two two weeks to get out of here And so I thought, oh no Uh, And so then what we did was I started looking to find another place I couldn't find another place So now we had one week, it was Sunday morning We had to be out, the next Sunday was our last Sunday And I thought, what am I going to do And so I went in front of the congregation that particular Sunday and I preached the message out of the book of Exodus where Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt and towards the promised land, but got trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea on the other side. And he's whining before God and God says, don't whine to me. Tell the people to go forward. So I preached that message to our congregation. I said, we're moving and you don't know where we're going But the Lord says to me to tell you to tell the people we're going forward. So next week, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bring your trucks. I want you to bring your trailers because the landlord has said they're gutting the building and we can have anything and everything in the building. We're going to be like the children of Israel plundering Egypt. And so they said, yeah, but pastor, where are we going? And I said, that's not the question. Tell the people to go forward. Bring your trailers. (laughs) I had no idea where we were going. Anyway, that very next week, God God is never late. It's amazing, but he's never early either. That very next week, I secured a location in a strip mall down Pemna Highway, just over here. And so the next week, I preached on Joshua crossing the, the Jordan River. Everybody brought their grubbies and their trailers and things. And we stripped the building bare. We took off the wall paneling. And we took off the doors and the nursery. They had a glass. Last nursery with wooden doors and we took that out we ripped out the bathroom stalls and we took out the sinks and the toilets and we went down to this this strip mall and it was the Arizona Fitness Center it was completely empty and we dumped all that stuff in on a Sunday afternoon in our new location and then the next week during the week I got I gathered all the men and we went in there and we put the whole church back together like a Lego set and we put it all back together. We built the nursery the way it was. and Big doors coming into the sanctuary. And We did all this. And not only did we do it for free, we did it without a permit. It didn't even need a permit in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> or not that I knew of, anyway. <laughs> And so, anyway, we, so we were there for a year, and then we started bumping around. We had to move different places and into different strip mall locations. Here's another one. We were in the, uh, the Block Brothers. Remember Block Brothers was a real estate company, and they closed 27 locations in Winnipeg, so we rented one of their locations. There we are again. Look at Kathy. She still looks fabulous, doesn't she, in every picture? And just so you know, yeah, you can give her a hand. <laughs> they want it, Kathy. I can't help it. Uh, but I just so you know, those pants are the bottom half of a double-breasted suit. <laughs> it was warm out that day, so I took it off. So anyway, our slogan in those days was we had to change it. We had to come up with a new motto, and it was, "You can join us." If you can find us, <laughs> we're moving all over the place. But the point was this, if, 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 if uh, you obey, God will make a way, which he totally did every step of the way. So the third one on my list here is give the call and invite them all so fast forwarding the story by 1991 uh, we had good friends their names were Willard and Betty Teason it's a new day how many remember Willard and Betty great people they were friends of ours and they had bought this fantastic building uh, on 1111 Chevrier it's still there today it's it's a Coptic church and they had bought this building and they wanted to get other people involved with the project and make sure it was well used because it was a big building so they invited our church to just in the nick of time to move into their building with them which we did so we were meeting in this great facility and uh in 1990 so we were there for six years 1994 pastor keith came and by then the church had been growing up until then but we had kind of stalled out at that 200 number and 200 is a little bit of a ceiling those of you that know your church history stuff is that north american churches tend to hit the ceiling at 200 and it's a very hard barrier to break And here's what happened. The year was 1995, and we had heard about a revival in Pensacola, Florida. And it was called the Brownsville Outpouring or the Brownsville Revival. And it was a Pentecostal church in Brownsville that on Father's Day in 1995, revival broke out. And they were seeing thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ. It's a a fantastic story. And so after about six months that this thing had been raging on, people were coming from all over the world wanting to see what God was doing, wanted to see what revival looked like. They had meetings every single night for years actually. And so we flew down there and there was 11 pastors from Winnipeg and I'll never forget when we got here. Here's a picture of the outside of the building. There was people waiting by the hundreds outside to get in. Uh, from four or five or six hours before the service started each evening this was a Tuesday night and we were standing in this hot line for hour after hour we finally got into this building we didn't know what to expect we got pretty good seats and they had this worship service it was electric the room was packed they had to turn people away people were lining up to go to church and the church was turning people away when does that happen well during revivals is when it happened so anyway, we didn't know what to expect. We didn't really know what was going on. And this place was a Southern Pentecostal church. Now, understand something about Southern Pentecostals. Uh, they're kind of extreme in sort of a way. They got that loud, preachy kind of thing. And, and, and basically, is how, this is how their altar call worked, was if you had any sin in your life, you were probably going straight to hell. So anyway, it's the first night. I didn't exactly know how they were doing it. It's the first night. We're standing up. He's been preaching his heart out uh, or actually we're all sitting down. This is how it worked. We're all sitting down. He was preaching his heart out. And then he said, if there's any of you that have anything that's not right in your life, I want you to stand up. Well, who doesn't have anything not right in their life? We all have something not right. Right. And so, you know, I stood up as the only pastor that stood up. I was the only one with sin in my life. How about that? And, uh, so, so I stood up and then they called us forward and I went forward and then I realized I was in the altar call. I didn't realize, I, I didn't recognize what he was doing. I thought, I'm in the altar call, and I'm up at the front, and these altar workers are giving me a decision card and, and, and welcoming me in, into the faith. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a pastor. To which she said, praise the Lord, another pastor's been saved. <laughs> so here's the good news for you people. Your pastor's now a Christian. So, so, so this is good. So anyway, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm just going to roll with it and see how they do it. I mean, no point in objecting. So So anyway, the next day, the pastor's name... Oh, I should show you a picture of this guy that was the preacher. His name is Steve Hill. Here he is. Here, and uh, they had thousands and thousands, and he did the preaching every single night for for months and months and months and months and months. But the pastor was a guy by the name of John Kilpatrick, and he did the preaching on Sunday. So we took him out for lunch. There was eleven of us. He was curious about these eleven pastors from Winnipeg, and we were sitting down with him, and he's telling us about the story of the, the revival. revivals. So this is what he said: You're gonna love it. He says, you know, so far we've had twenty thousand people come to Christ including 25 pastors to which I said correction make that 26 I got saved last night and of course I'm poking fun and he goes praise the Lord praise the Lord (laughs) another pastor saved I thought whatever and so so anyway I am just sort of describing a little bit of the the nature and how they did it and it's not my thing exactly but here's what you couldn't deny God was doing something and there really truly was thousands and thousands of people getting saved. I'm not so sure about the pastors. But I know a lot of people were coming to Christ. And so it's about the fourth night. By this time we've figured out what's going on. We're sitting there in this electric service. There's all kinds of people flooding to the altars and, and coming to Christ. And God spoke to me as clearly as day. And he said to me, you can do this. Now, what he meant, I believe, I don't think he was saying you can do this wacky thing these guys are doing. I don't think that's what he was saying. I think what he was saying is you can do this and bring people to Christ. And I felt a commission. I felt like he wanted me to do it. So when we came home, I immediately started doing something I really hadn't done in our church before. And that was giving the invitation. Giving the invitation like we do still to this day. And so I came home very, very first Sunday. I gave an invitation for anybody that didn't know Christ to make that decision. And guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. And everybody looked at me like this. And I gave it the next week, and the next week, and the next week. And a month later, I was still doing it, and you know what happened? Nothing, nothing, nothing happened. And I kept on doing this month after month after month. And then the elders or the leaders in the church started coming to me and saying, Pastor Mark, why are you doing that? It's embarrassing. You're taking up all that time at the end of the service. Nobody's coming to Christ. It's a bit embarrassing. Why don't you do it once in a while? I said, no, I made a commitment to God. He spoke to me and he said, you can do this. And so I believe I can do this. And I'm going to keep doing this until something happened. So several months later, I'm still doing it much to the chagrin of a bunch of people. And all of a sudden, that particular day, a gal, never been there before, was sitting at the back and she put up her hand. Not only did she put up her hand, and I never asked her to do this, she came to the front. She came to the front and she knelt down at the, at the front and she had more stuff in her life than you can shake a stick at. And she wanted to get right with God. And that day, someone got saved in front of everybody's eyes. And finally, the pastor's altar call paid off. And people were just seriously moved by this. And I thought, I can't wait till next week. And I did it again the next week. And guess what happened? Nothing. <laughs> and, and, but in a, a month later, someone else came. And then a month later, someone else came. And then the frequency between the people not coming to Christ started to get smaller and smaller. And within about a year, people were coming to Christ every single week. And let me tell you something we have been doing this now. You all know that we never end a service without doing this. We never know who's in this room. We don't know where people's spiritual life is at in any given moment. And we always take the time. Don't ever get sick of this. We always take the time to give people the invitation. Give everybody an opportunity to come to Christ. And in the last probably 26 years, we have taken altar calls every single week for 26 years. And do you know that during that time, we have never had a weekend where no one came to Christ? Maybe we've had services, but every single week for 26 years, people have been coming to Christ in Church of the Rock. Probably five or 6,000 people to date. Something like that. So don't get, don't ever get tired of this. So let's just throw them up again. So give the call and invite them all. Number four, your future space may be right in front of your face. So the church began to to grow, of course, after we started taking those, uh, in, giving those invitations for people to come to Christ. It started to grow again, and uh, then one night I had this dream, and in this dream, you know, dreams are kind of wonky, so you get that. And I saw these street lights, and the street lights were were, were green, and then red, and then yellow. And everybody knows what those lights mean, right? Green means go, red means stop, yellow means go very, very fast, right? <laughs> That's what most of you think it means. Uh, but no, it means proceed with caution. And so God gave me this yellow light and then he told me that it had something to do with TV ministry. Now I assumed it was for someone else. And so I was trying to give this, to, this dream to other people. And finally the Lord spoke to me and corrected me and said, no, it's for you, dummy. That's what the Lord said to me. He called me dummy, you know. And and he might speak to you like that sometimes, but you're not listening. When you hear the word dummy, he's probably the Lord speaking to you. And he said, it's for you, dummy. And I thought, why is it for me? And here was the thing. My future space was right in front of my face. We met in a television studio. We had television lights right over top like this. There was television cameras on really long cords in the very, very next room. And we had Ernie Nathaniel, the guy who still produces our show today, sitting in the pew doing nothing. And he knew people that could run cameras. And so we went and talked to Trinity. And we said, would you rent us these cameras? And they said, yes. And when I talked to Ernie. I said, would you do this for us? He, he said, yes. We drove out to Ports of Prairie, where there was a little station called MTN. And it's now City TV today. And we went and t- talked to the guys at MTN and asked them if they'd be interested in our show. And to our surprise, they said yes. And we went on air for the first time. And and we just kept on at it. We just started off small, one little station, and then we end, added Brandon, and then we added Kenora, and then we added Calgary, and then we added Edmonton, and we just kept on doing that. And within about eight or nine years, we were in every major city from coast to coast, to, from Victoria Island, Victoria, BC rather, all the way to Newfoundland, and everywhere in between. And to date, we are the largest, number one watched religious program in Canada with 200,000 viewers every week. And you probably don't even know that. (laughs) And so sometimes your future space is right in front of your face. And it was right there. We were meeting there, but I didn't see it. And it took God to say, It's right in front of you, dummy, in order to get it. So sometimes you lift up your eyes, and there it is, your destiny in front of you. So the next one is this. So that one's your future space. It may be right in front of your face. Number five, if you decide, God will provide. Now, there was people that were a little concerned about this whole TV thing. You know what concerned them? Take a guess. Yeah, paying for it. <laughs> How are you going to pay for this thing? And that was a pretty good question because television ministry is super expensive. I mean, the cameras and the equipment and the, and the editing and the airtime, it's all really expensive. So we decided if we did this thing, then God would have to provide. We would decide, but God would provide. And I made commitment to our congregation that we would not ask, them money for, ask for money for television ministry. And we decided that we were not going to ask the viewers for money. Now, that was rare in those days. Some of you remember the televangelists back in those days. They spent most of their time asking for money so they could stay on air to ask you for more money. That's a big cynical, isn't it? But we thought, you know what? We don't need that cynicism. We're going to do this. And if God provides, we'll keep on. And the moment he doesn't pay our bills and the moment we can't pay for airtime and the moment the money doesn't come in from somewhere, some way, we'll go off the air. We told our congregation that they liked that. <laughs> they liked not having to pay for it. And anyway, what happened is God just kept on providing. And to this day, the airtime alone is $400,000 every year. It's a huge project. But you know what? God just brings it in. And in all of those years, we're talking some 26 years now. In all those years, we've never, ever asked money from our viewers or our congregation for television ministry. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, I, I got to tell you this story about it because, uh, well, maybe I'll move on because I'm running out of time. So so this, this one here is uh, um, if you decide God will provide, which he did. And the next one here is, is growth comes when you live to give. And, you know, we talk a lot about living to give as Christians. We know we're supposed to give. We know that the Bible teaches that you should give to those who ask. And we know that there's a principle in it. It's called sowing and reaping. And whatever you sow, you shall also reap. We teach the people that. And most churches do. But here's what's interesting. A lot of churches aren't that very good at it. They're good at asking people to give. They're not very good at giving themselves of their money. And they're busy spending it on themselves. So we made this this other decision right at the beginning. That we were going to live to give as a church. So here's where it started We were brand new We were just getting going On this whole journey And uh, we had a, a, a church friends. People were really close And they were going out Of a rented space Like we were in And they were going out Of their rented space And they were building Their very first building And they were really short of money And I talked to the, to the board And I said Look we have $1,500 In our bank account That's all the money we had And I said Why don't we empty The whole bank account And give them the whole $1,500 And we agreed to do that That was a bold move I know $1,500 Doesn't sound like a lot of money But for a church plant back in the 80s, when that $1,500 could have been used for something better, like paying me, we we actually gave them $1,500. And you know what? We felt really good about it because God replaced that money almost right away. And we thought, you know, I don't think you can help give God. You probably know that. And so we just started giving. So we started giving $1,500 to churches that were getting started and were planting a building or starting a building project or whatever. And then we started increasing that. We started giving $5,000 away. One church we gave $25,000 away. Where was a church plant? We gave them $35,000. And the most recent gift, I'll tell you who it was because inquiring minds want to know. Gateway Church is building a new building in West St. Paul on the perimeter. It's a big, huge endeavor. And you gave them $50,000. Did you know that? <laughs> and here's what's happened. As you live to give, things begin to happen. God just continues to bring it in, right? Because you reap where you sow. Now, let me, let me re- remind you of this. The, well, most of you are not going to know this. We had our annual general meeting just a couple of weeks ago. And we had a number that floated out that I didn't realize. And I'm going to share it with you. In the history of our church, last year, we have now in our missions giving. Are you ready for this? Just surpassed $20 million of giving to missions in 35 years. I never thought in a million years that our church, especially at the beginning, would ever be able to give that kind of money. But we did. I want to tell you one quick story about that because I think you'll get a kick out of it. So we have this big building here. And the roof is four acres in size. It's 186,000 square feet, this building. And uh, it has had a leaky roof since we bought it 20 years ago. And this roof always leaked, and it was getting worse, and it was getting worse. But the cost of replacing that roof was $2 million. And we thought, where are we going to come up with $2 million? And how are we going to do that quickly? And we thought to ourselves, we could do a fundraising campaign, and we could raise $2 million. Or we could let the roof leak, and we could raise money for missions instead. (laughs) And so that's just what we've done. We thought, you know, we can't ask people for, to fix our roof when we have missions projects around the world that are so desperate. So I'll never forget about four or five years ago, we were having a uh, pie auction missions fundraiser. You've all been to those. And uh, it was in the spring. Usually it was pie auction weekend that the roof started to leak because the snow was melting on the roof and then it was coming in through all the holes and leaks in the roof. And so anyway, over in this section, we had about 60 chairs moved out of the way and we had about 30 garbage cans and it wasn't dripping in here. It was raining in in the building. People say, Church of the Rock has a lot of garbage cans. No, they're not garbage cans. They're water collectors. <laughs> and We've used them all over the building for various leaks. And that particular Sunday, we're doing the pie auction. It's raining over there. It's just pouring. People couldn't sit anywhere near because the splashes were splashing them on their seats. And we went ahead with our pie auction. We raised $250,000 that year. And through the whole service, we never once mentioned the fact that the roof was leaking. And at the end of the service, I'll never forget, this man came up. He says, I'm a visitor to your church. I've never been here before. I love what you're doing with missions. And he says, I'm joining this church, and I'll tell you why. I said, why? He said, any church that would raise a quarter million dollars for missions while their roof was leaking, (laughs) that's a church I want to be part of. (laughs) And I thought that was so cool and such a validation that we're here to live to give. And you know, we saved for that roof, and and last year we repaired that roof. And we saved probably eight or nine years before we had enough money, and we repaired the whole roof. So God provided. You've got to live to give. Last and final thing. Real quick. If you think enormous, God will do ginormous. We all know what it says in the book of Ephesians. Now, God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all you can. What? Think and ask god can do bigger than whatever you can think or ask they say that if god is your partner make big plans and we get that but whatever your big plans are he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond whatever you can think and whatever you ask and if you can think enormous god will do ginormous and you know people ask me this question they say pastor mark did you see all this 35 years ago (laughs) Are you kidding? I didn't see any of this 35 years ago. Not one little bit of it. And when I look back at what God has done in this place, it's beyond ginormous. I mean, imagine that we own a four-acre building on 11 acres. Imagine that we have reached thousands and thousands of people for Christ. Imagine that we have a television ministry that goes out to 200,000 people every week. Imagine that we have a multi-site mega church with congregations all over the city and in rural Manitoba. Imagine that we have spent $20 million in the endeavor of missions around the world. When I look at the number of lives that have been changed and people's marriages that have been transformed. When I look at the number of leaders we've raised up and the number of people that have been discipled. When I stand back and look at what God has done in our midst, I understand what they meant when they set up the stone and called it Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has helped us. I didn't see any of that happening 35 years ago. But here. Here's what I want to remind you, that whatever he has done thus far, he's planning to exceed that in the future. Our greatest days are yet ahead, people. This is just the beginning. (laughs) Thus far, the Lord has helped us. And our finest hour is yet to come. Let's stand together, shall we? You know, I want to thank you, first of all, before we do what you know we're going to do. But I want to thank you for being part of this journey. None of this was possible without you. You've been part of this. You've been faithful. You've been giving. You've been serving. And we need to keep on keeping on. God has got us in his hand. And everything that we've seen here, God has done it. But he used you to make it happen. So I just want to say thank you for being part of the journey. Now, this is going to come as a huge surprise to you. But I want to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would for a moment. Like I said, don't ever get sick of this. There may be people, probably is in this room, people that have never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And I want to give you that opportunity today. And I won't single you out. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to do any of that. But if you're here and you're unsure about your future destiny, your eternal security, if you're unsure, if you were to die this week or this month or this year, if you go to heaven, why not today be the day when you invite Christ into your life? So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you'd like to make that decision today, and I won't call you forward, as I promise, I want you to just slip up your hand so I can see it. Just take a moment. Let me know you want to make that decision. Thank you at the back. Thank you in the middle. Anybody else want to join these folks? Nobody's looking around. It's between you and me and Jesus. Just take a moment. Maybe you knew him in the past and you want to come back. Why don't you raise your hand? All right, fantastic. Okay, you can all put your hands down. Thank you so much for acknowledging that. And uh, we're going to all say this prayer together because I said I wouldn't sing on you So let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross that you went to the cross for me, for my sin, for my eternal life. And you paid the price that I might have life. And on the third day, you rose again. And you forever live. And today I make you my Lord. I thank you for who you are and what you've done. And I invite you to lead me and guide me. Lord, these these lessons I learned today, these seven lessons, help me to walk them out in my own life. Help me to make a difference to my world and the people around me. And thank you for being part of the journey. And thus far, The Lord has helped me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.